0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel. And we are joined today by Christopher Howard, who is the author of Who Cares? The Social Safety Net in America, new from Oxford University Press. Chris, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, So I wonder if you might start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about what you do and who you are and what it is that brought you to this particular project.
1: Sure. So I teach at the College of William and Mary, and I'm now in my 30th year. Um, I am in the government department, and I also teach public policy courses. My particular interests are in the history and politics of U.S. social policy. Um, That's where a fair amount of my teaching is. That's where most of my research is. Um, And I've been writing about different facets of the American welfare state ever since I got here. Um, My first book, was uh, investigating the ways in which the tax code is used to make social policy, in particular tax expenditures like the earned income tax credit and the home mortgage interest deduction. Um, I focused at other times on programs like workers' comp and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, I'm much more of a generalist. Um, Some people in this area really focus on healthcare, really focus on housing. I tend to range around in programs and in time periods periods. This book is really about the social safety net in the 21st century. Um, I got interested in this from a couple of different directions. One is that I was trying to write a book that might combine both politics and policy. A lot of books out there tend to be strong at one or the other, and I was hoping to do some of both. I also noticed that, at least within political science, there was a lot of emphasis over the last decade or two in problems related to inequality. And I thought that Those kinds of books and articles tended to overlap some with poverty, but not always. And fixing inequality doesn't always mean fixing poverty. I tend to like areas where I think that problems are being understudied or ignored. So that got me interested in writing a book more generally about poverty in the United States and the kinds of efforts, public and private, to address poverty.
0: So I think it's fair to say that, that one of the things that distinguishes your approach from, from other efforts to, to give folks a portrait of the U.S. welfare state is that you are, uh, one of the ways in which you're framing it is through work uh, principally, I think, associated with political theorist Joan Tronto around uh, the ethic of care and other writings. I wonder if you could tell uh, folks just a little bit about Tronto's way of thinking about this issue and what attracted you to that and how you use that as a jumping off point for this book.
1: Sure. So she's been working on care theory for her entire career, and there are a whole group of theorists, many of them feminist theorists who've been working on care theory as well. The part that particularly interested me about it was that she has this sort of four-stage model of caring that starts with caring about, then taking care of, caregiving and care receiving. And to me, that seemed like a really good way of organizing the different ways in which society cares for vulnerable members the taking care of and caring about can be somewhat um, abstract and rhetorical um i care a lot about the homeless i care a lot about hunger um, i think the government should take care of poor kids um, then the other parts they're having to do with caregiving and care receiving involve more about concrete actions, um, whether those be uh, volunteers and charity or government or extended families. Underneath this care theory is a general sort of vision of human life which is basically that we don't go through life entirely independent, that much of our lives are spent dependent, sometimes independent, and sometimes it's a mix where we're caring for others at the same time that others are caring for us. And it it seemed to me like it was both a persuasive and realistic and comprehensive way about thinking uh, about how societies deal with people who are uh, experiencing material hardship.
0: So one of the the other ways in which you frame this is is the first section of the book is looking at what is it that people in the United States Uh, What are their opinions about, what do they have to say about poverty or poor people or homelessness and related issues? And then the second uh, uh, section of the book is looking at those social policies you made reference to earlier to ask, what do we actually do and not do as a matter of policy? So why don't we start with with the what do people say piece? What should people know about people's opinions about poverty and poor people and to connect it back to to Toronto in that framing, what do we say we care about or how do we think about the ways in which we, of people who we do care and don't care about?
1: Sure, so the first part of the book, the first four chapters uh, are divided into public, the general public, business and labor, charities and churches and public officials and trying to examine closely what each of them are saying in terms of caring about and who should take care of. The patterns really differ. Um, I think that the ways in which uh, labor uh, labor unions and the Democratic Party talk about poor and need are very similar, which they see it through a lens of work. They're particularly interested in helping people who are workers and in connecting them to programs like social security, unemployment insurance, the earned income tax credit. Churches and charities tend to think about folks in terms of need. Uh, They don't expect people necessarily to be working Um, and they are just looking to meet whatever sort of needs, whether they be housing or food or medical care, um, public opinion is more of a mix. And it really does depend on how the question is asked, just simply on the level of how much care, um, sort of questions like the Gallup most important problem facing the country questions. People, very few people say anything related to poverty, hunger, homelessness. um, And I mean, like 3%, 5%. On the other hand, if you ask the question differently, which is what sort of priorities do you think the president and Congress should tackle this year, and you list a series of them and let people pick more than one, then lots of people, 50, 60, 70 percent, depending on the year, will say, yeah, they should be working on on poverty. Um, you know, so it, it's hard to get um, a strong sense from looking across these different groups that poverty and hunger and homelessness are really top of mind for them. The main place where you tend to see it tend to be in churches and charities, and even then, they're worrying about a whole range of issues, um, abortion, same-sex marriage, racial justice. Uh, they're also worried just about the financial health of their organization, since church membership is on the decline. So it, it's hard to find a lot of voices who are spending a lot of time caring about um, these groups.
0: Well, I mean, we could say this arguably about all sorts of areas of public policy, right? Public opinion polling is, is sort of often contradictory and hard to pull apart when you dig into it, maybe because yeah. people don't necessarily have coherent ideas about politics and policies themselves. But but one of the things that you point to is is that I think particularly interesting is despite the fact that left to their own devices, people will not necessarily cite poverty and homelessness as, as among their most pressing issues, they will also... Uh, Suggests that that the the level of income that qualifies one to be poor should be significantly higher than it is for most official measures, and again, as you point to in the book, many more people are likely to experience at least a spell of poverty than some of those official measures would suggest. What what do you what do you think's going on there? What do you make of that?
1: Yeah. So. If you ask people, how many Americans do you think are in poverty, you'll get, you know, depending on the year you ask, but you'll get a number basically three times the official poverty rate. Um, I don't. And that initially surprised me that it was so much different than the uh, sort of the official Census Bureau's Bureau numbers. On the other hand, when you look at organizations like the United Way and the Salvation Army, they have their own ways of sort of measuring need. They also tend to come up with numbers that are substantially higher than the uh, official government measure there. I think that, um, you know. The official poverty line has been criticized for years as being just technically deficient. The supplemental poverty measure is a a better measure. But even so, I think there's a a strong argument that what ordinary people are seeing and that what organizations like the United Way are seeing are a lot closer to the reality here that in fact, many people um, who live above the poverty line are struggling to make ends meet. Um, This is particularly true true in some areas like housing, where you have a lot of folks who are cost burdened. Um, it's also true for folks if they are trying to, you know, have a couple of kids in child care, pay for long-term care in any sort of large institution. Um, that's enormous amounts of money, and, and people can feel stressed very, pretty easily.
0: So, before we use that as a segue to turn our attention to looking at what kind of supports are, in fact, available to those folks, could you talk just a little bit about that that broader general public opinion and how it varies by race and gender and party affiliation and anything else that you think is important we pay attention to?
1: Sure. So when you ask people about poverty a lot of the questions in the surveys are about sort of poverty and race we don't hear much about poverty and gender but then when you flip it around and you say okay let's just look at the standard poverty questions and split them out men and women black white hispanic etc there there is a gender gap um women tend to care more about poverty related issues than men do Um, the gap is even more substantial when it comes to race and ethnicity. um, Blacks and Hispanics tend to put a higher priority um, on these poverty-related issues uh, than whites do. And there is a substantial partisan gap um, with Democrats caring more than Republicans. I don't talk about it as much in the book, but there is also uh, a clear pattern with income and class. And generally, the more income you have, the less you are concerned about these problems and the less interested you are in having government do more to address them.
0: Perhaps not surprisingly, right? Yeah. Um, so, so let's turn our attention to what uh, not just government does, but what uh, supports are available also through uh, family and kinship networks, and through uh, uh, charities, churches, and and other organizations. Um, so you break that section down into income, housing, medical care, and what you refer to as daily care, which includes things like long term care and daycare. Um, why don't we start with with income? Right, thinking of that perhaps extraordinarily large segment of the population that is unable to, uh, over the ordinary course of, say, a year, always meet their needs, where does their income come from primarily, and what's available when that primary source falls short?
1: Sure. So we have in this country... Um, millions of people who are working in low-wage jobs um, working part-time when they'd rather be working full-time who are trying very hard to support themselves with a paycheck and fall short. We've also got millions of people who are children or severely handicapped um, or elderly who generally are not expected to be self-sufficient through wage work. So we've got both working poor and non-working poor. A lot of the help uh, when it comes to income support in this country is tied to either people who are working or have a history of paid work. So the biggest programs here, social security is hands down the biggest program when it comes to pulling people out of poverty. It's had huge positive effects there. Um, The earned income tax credit, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, all of these programs are really crucial in providing income support to people who um, have a work history or are working. If you... don't have that sort of work history, um, life gets tougher. Um, The main sort of quote-unquote welfare program, cash welfare program, TANF, there's just not much cash support these days. Um, There's a little, but most of it is services of some type, but it's just a very small program compared to most of the other parts of the public safety net. Um, Otherwise, there's SSI, the Supplemental Security Income Program, Also not a huge program, but largely for people who are seriously uh, disabled Um, and um, that used to have a fair number of elderly folks. Now it's largely non-elderly disabled adults and disabled children. But we really do for income support put a premium that you got to work for it. Um, if you want to get some help for for government. On the charity side, there just aren't that many charities that are in the business of handing out cash. Um, Charities are much more attuned, and this has been true for decades and decades, to providing particular goods like food or medical care or shelter. But other than you know, the occasional like fires or natural disasters when somebody like the Red Cross or the United Way might give folks a little money for a hotel for a little bit, um, the charities are really not in position to, to provide cash and that's not their usual way of doing business. The sort of family safety net of extended family um, there's a lot of studies largely by sort of sociologists and journalists showing that um, folks are doing as much income sharing as they can, but there's just not often a lot of income to share. And, and a lot yeah. of poor folks just don't have rich relatives that they can reach out to when times are hard.
0: Yeah. Um, so just to, to... Point, because I did for me anyway, a lot of the subtext here is, you know, I'm sort of swimming through my head, the conservative arguments about, you know, people's sort of, of of failure to exert themselves in the appropriate way in order to lift themselves out of poverty. And if they would only do more, they could do that. Uh, the government programs you referenced, uh, the EITC, SSDI in particular, uh, uh TANF, those can be extraordinarily onerous and rigorous application processes. And we know from all kinds of data that depending on the program, maybe 50, 60, 70% at best of people who are eligible for them actually even wind up with benefits, right?
1: Yeah. And, 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 That is one of the selling points of the Earned Income Tax Credit is that the participation rate tends to be higher, but that's not an accident. There was a concerted effort for years and years, particularly led by the Nonprofit Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, but they also enlisted a lot of grassroots groups uh, because a lot of these folks generally think of the tax code as something to be avoided at all costs. And so you have to sort of let them know, well, actually, if you apply, there's a chance to get a refund, and and you can actually get money from Uncle Sam. It's not just about having to pay. But then there are other programs like, um, yeah, SNAP, the main food stamps program, right. and and TANF, where the administrative burdens are are significant, um, and because in particular you've got states that are on the hook for some of the spending there, Um, states do not necessarily have a huge incentive to remind people or reach out to people to come out and get these benefits. Um, Now, some states do, um, but there are also cases where individuals have to work pretty hard in order to find out and and complete those applications. One of the interesting twists I came across is that one of the major food charities, Feeding America, they actually boast about the fact that they help people sign up for SNAP. Um, and even though people are coming to sort of food banks and food pantries for charitable help, they realize that the bigger solution would be getting them enlisted and enrolled in SNAP, and they have been working for years to enroll thousands and thousands of people to get those government benefits.
0: So let's let's turn on to let's uh, uh, imagine I am I am for whatever reason unable to earn enough through the labor market in order to make basic ends meet and and don't have a uh, family with much more by way of resources than I do and have had a difficult time accessing the the cash programs that you've talked about uh let's say I need some assistance with housing what what kind of help is available to me there
1: Yeah so there are a few charities, and I talk some about Habitat for a Humanity, um, that are in the business of affordable housing, but they tend to be sort of, you know, measured in the thousands of units. It's pretty small scale. Uh, It's it's pretty small scale. I mean, I'm not dismissing it. It helps every single person, but the problem's just much, much bigger. So for those folks, I mean, there are government programs. Um, The two main ones are public housing and rental vouchers. Um, There are substantial waiting lists for both of those. Um, There isn't enough money to cover all of the people who are eligible, and some people wait years in order to be able to uh, take advantage of those programs. The bigger one of those is the rental vouchers, and in that case, if people do manage to get off the waiting list, they've got a relatively short span of time in order to actually use that voucher, find a landlord who will take it, Um, otherwise they will lose that voucher and lose their place in line. So you don't have much in the way of a charitable sector. You do have some effort um, uh, from the public sector. And then um, increasingly, you've got the extended family and a lot of shared households. particularly for um, young adults in their 20s and early 30s uh, who don't have a college degree and are having trouble affording an apartment on their own, having trouble affording uh, a down payment on a starter home. A lot of them are living still with their parents when that's probably not their first choice, and you've got a number of uh, disabled and elderly uh, Americans who have trouble living on their own and won't be able to get uh, much help from the government and instead maybe moving back in with their uh, elderly relatives of working age who can help take care of them.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
0: Um, well, so that's not encouraging. Uh, how about medical care? Let's, let's, is, can I at least get some help if I'm sick and I need to see a doctor?
1: So Medicaid is clearly one of the biggest, most important parts of the social safety net. Um, and that has been true for many years. Medicaid was uh, gradually expanded in the 1980s to cover more low-income women and children. And then, of course, with the Affordable Care Act. Um, substantial expansion there, um, which many but not all states have taken advantage of. There are millions and millions of Americans each year who get their medical care through Medicaid. Um, There are some who also may be getting help from Medicare, so that's the social Mm -hmm. insurance program that is uh, geared largely to providing care for the uh, elderly whatever their income, and for adults with serious disabilities. And some people who are low income may be getting help from both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, there are some things that um, fall outside of Medicare and Medicaid that um, a, a small Small ish network of free and charitable clinics help with. Um, and uh, oftentimes in many communities, there are people who don't qualify for Medicaid um, or Medicare, or they may find that some of the cost sharing um, is prohibitive, uh, or they may find with their employer that the cost sharing is prohibitive. And so they may take advantage of care at a free or charitable clinic, but there are many parts of the country where this is just simply not an option practically because it's just too far away. Yeah,
0: And for, for those who may not necessarily know that, that Medicare is not necessarily free, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the differences between, say, Part A, Part B, and Part D, and what that can mean toward, toward the expenditures you need to make in order to get access to coverage?
1: Sure. So one of the strange things about medicare is that does have these different parts and they don't all operate the same way so part a is the traditional hospital insurance program and this is the one that looks more like a traditional social insurance program and when people are paying during their working years um, this is the part of the program that they're really paying for Um, and that tends to have some um, copays and deductibles associated with it when people might need um, x-rays or hospital care and things of that nature. Parts B and D um, are, work differently. Part B is essentially sort of the more routine doctor visits, x-rays, lab tests, and Part D is prescription drugs. These programs are optional. Um, and if people want those benefits, they have to be able to pay a monthly premium to get them. Um, and roughly speaking, they pick up about a quarter of the cost of the Part B benefits and the Part D benefits. And the government, through general revenues, not through payroll taxes, um, picks up most of the rest. Um Depending on people's income levels, they then may also be expected to have some copays and deductibles. As you get poorer um, for folks uh, in Medicaid, um, Medicaid will sometimes pick up those cost sharing um, copays and deductibles from Medicare um, if you are also eligible for Medicaid.
0: So let's take a look at the, the the last of these categories that you point to, daily care. What 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 falls under that rubric, and how should we think about what's again available to folks there?
1: This is the one part that doesn't fit neatly into sort of standard stories about the welfare state here because the needs don't really reflect anything that to to do with sort of the rise of industrialism and and, um, modern capitalism. These sort of needs having to do with child care, parental leave, long-term care, these are as old as, as humankind. Um, and so here, it's not necessarily about um, people who are seriously disabled, but it's people who are unable to take care of themselves in a daily way. That might be just bathing themselves, feeding themselves, or it might be doing the grocery shopping or the cooking necessary in order to feed themselves. They may have trouble getting out of bed, etc. cetera. Um, we see this, of course, with young children. Um, and we have in this country a whole range of childcare arrangements, some of them purely family-based, some of them a mixture of family and paid care. And then at the sort of other end of the, the lifespan, we've got uh, folks relying on long-term care, some of that in an institution like a nursing home, um, increasingly people trying to rely on home-based care, home health aides, community-based care. Um, but either way you look at it, it's really expensive. Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if, if parents... you can
0: find it, if you can find it, <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, and, you know, for parents who are looking for, uh, you know, a paid five days a week, eight hour, nine hours a day child care, it's easily $10,000 a kid. Yeah. Uh, and for uh, you know a, f- a full-time year-round slot in a nursing home is easily $100,000. So pretty quickly, uh, there's a sort of traditional pattern there where people may start out paying out of pocket or with private insurance for long-term care, very quickly spend down their savings and have to move over to, to Medicaid to get help or turn to their family members for unpaid care. So is it
0: fair to say that one way to characterize the U.S. welfare state is that it is incredibly stingy and riddled with administrative burdens that make access to what is available difficult? Is that putting it too strongly, you think?
1: Well, the stingy part there, I mean, relative to other say, wealthy democracies, other to sort of European style or Canadian style, um, we definitely end up with more poverty, more people with uh, homelessness or cost burdens, more food insecurity. Um, so Lower
0: life expectancy, higher infant lower, mortality. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. The, the good news just keeps coming. Right. Um, um but we're certainly doing more than we used to. Um, And there Mm -hmm. are certain areas like social security or like the earned income tax credit, where the growth of those programs has definitely led to um, a decline in uh, hardship among key parts of the, the population. One of the things that I sort of wrestled with in writing the book is just even using this term safety net, which implies that, well, Whoever falls is going to get caught, and it it really is not the case. They're just all sorts of people falling through the safety net, Um, and I'm not sure at what point, when you have so many holes, if it's really all that useful to keep insisting that we've got this safety net.
0: So the bulk of of the analysis for the book uh, concludes prior to the onset of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020. Um, As we work our way toward concluding, Chris, can you talk a little bit about what you think? Are there lessons from COVID as we think about sort of capacity for government, what it can do, what it doesn't do, what it could do differently or better? Are there lessons and do you think that we have learned them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, um, and, and my, my short answer is probably some version of too soon to tell, but yeah. I mean, one of the things that we saw in the pandemic is that a real strength of the national government is cutting checks. And in a pinch, that's something that it has the resources to do, and that's something that technically can be done fairly quickly. So the unemployment checks that were expanded, the child tax credit that was expanded, the stimulus checks, all of those had a substantial uh, impact on reducing um, poverty and uh, reducing people's misery during a rather brutal pandemic here. Uh, A lot of the parts of the safety net that were designed to expand in hard times did just that. So here I'm thinking about Medicaid and SNAP in particular, Mm -hmm. where the enrollments went up as people lost health insurance and lost their, their paychecks there. my my hunch because i'm both some sort of mix of maybe realist and pessimist my hunch is that it's going to be fairly easy for people to try to dismiss the whole pandemic episode as like one giant national flood or one giant hurricane that was just this freak occurrence and it really shouldn't have any major impact on what we do going forward. But my sense is that, well, you know, if you think about this as a hurricane that knocked many of us down, that the structures were already shaky to begin with. Um, And part of the reason that we've got so many people in trouble these days is because the safety net that we had before the pandemic, uh, even in years that were pretty strong economically. And and here I'm talking about sort of 2014, 2018, 2019. Even so, we had a lot of people suffering.
0: This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Christopher Howard about his new book, Who Cares? The Social Safety Net in America from Oxford University Press. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.